And so if you will turn to Leviticus chapter 16, we'll meet there in just a moment. I remember um, some years ago uh, when I was at a different fitness level than I am currently, going on an extended hike uh, in the Appalachian Mountains in the United States. I went with a, a group of church friends. It was actually from a sister church uh, of ours, and uh, we covered 50 miles in five days. And it was a mountainous area in Pennsylvania, and uh, it was just beautiful. It was absolutely gorgeous, just uh, trekking through these woods, up a mountain, down a mountain, through the valley, up a mountain, down the mountain, and on we went across fields of grain that stood over our heads, uh, through fields of poison ivy that was just like carpet knee-high. Um, and it was just an adventure, you know, scrambling over boulders in some places, carrying uh, 37 pounds of pack on the back, in which you had to have absolutely everything. You know, what you sleep in, what you eat, what you cook with, you know, everything, your clothes, everything is on your back. And, um, and as you go along, of course, you get rather hot and sweaty, and uh, you come to your place where you're going to pause and set up camp for the day, and usually you do try to find a place where there's some sort of running water nearby, whether it's a river or a stream or something like that. And once you let that pack down, you just, before you can really enjoy dinner, you just really need a little bit of a washing up, right? And so you go into the stream, and you go in there with your water shoes because you never know what's in there and what you're going to step on, and you step into this freezing, bracing, rushing water for a very refreshing wash-up. And all you can do is just kind of, you know, you use that, that synthetic chamois, that microfiber cloth, you know, that you get wet and you just kind of try to do the best you can with that, you know, while you're in your swimming, swimming trunks and, and so on. It's just never quite satisfying. Because first of all, I can't stand cold showers. It's just, oh, the worst thing to me. Um, I'm, I'm thankful that God didn't send me to a third world country where I can't have hot showers. So you do the best you can, but you know, that's just never quite satisfying. You get out, you flick the ticks off of your toes and, and uh, try to get yourself warm again by the fire and, and, and continue on. Well, at the end of the five days and the 50 miles and the, and the little wash-ups in the rivers and things like that, when you finally get home and you step into your own shower and you turn on the hot tap, and that beautiful full stream just flows down over your head and shoulders and warms you and really gives you an opportunity to get truly clean. You appreciate it in a whole new way. You come out just feeling like a new person. Like, oh, wow, now I've been really washed. Now I feel like a human again. Well, it's just a small thing, but there is a washing that we need that's spiritual, that we can never do adequately for ourselves. The only way that it can be truly, fully cleansing, truly, fully satisfying, that they can actually make us like new people. It's a washing that has to come from God himself. That's not quite the same illustration, but it's, but it, it's a similar sort of a thing. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the of the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. And I uh, appreciate this, this one where uh, this boy has kind of acted <laughs> rather badly and, and, um, and sleeps on, on a dragon's you know, hoard of gold, right? 
And he wakes up having taken the place of the dragon, having changed into the dragon. And he's distraught and and he and he flees. He goes he goes off to this isolated place next to this pool and he and he gets in and he tries to to scrub you know this dragonness off of him and he's ripping and tearing and so on and and ultimately it's not until the lion Aslan who kind of you know figuratively represents Christ uh, comes along and he's the one who tears that away and and he emerges with you know fresh raw human skin uh, being a new boy transformed both inside and out from that point on it's a work that only God can do that really changes us, that really makes us. Knowing that everyone needed to learn this lesson, that we would all need to have this revealed to us. God set out in the ceremonies of the Old Testament for the people of Israel, in the Mosaic Law, a vivid illustration of the work of cleansing that only God can do. And he attached that cleansing just in such a way that it cannot be extricated from the work of atonement. Atonement leads to cleansing. Cleansing accompanies atonement. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at the third and last part of the Day of Atonement portion of study, which, is, which has all been in chapter 16 of Leviticus. So just by way of Brief revision, well, if we look at the part one of the Day of Atonement study, we looked at those uh, first few verses of the chapter, and we saw that, that through this, we, we learned that there's limited access through a human high priest. Right? It was dangerous to approach God unqualified. Their warnings were given in the first two verses of chapter 16, uh, and that it was only a human high priest who could go in once a day, and he himself had to be purified from sin. He had to offer a sacrifice for himself before he could enter. So there's definitely limited access to God through a human high priest in this Old Testament setting. And then we saw that, in contrast, we have unlimited access through the great high priest. Jesus is called the great high priest. He has access to God and grants us that access through him. Uh, it still requires a blood atonement. But Jesus offered up that atonement himself. He provided the ultimate, fully satisfactory blood atonement, as we will see and be reminded of again today. And he was the uniquely qualified high priest, whereas the, whereas the high priests before, they, and we learned from uh, some commentary of tradition that developed over the, over the years, uh, when the high priest had been selected to be the high priest, this was his, his number one most important duty this one day of the year, going and offering up sacrifice for himself, offering sacrifice for the people, going in, sprinkling the blood on, on the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies and so on. And there was always that fearful moment when the priest would have to step through the veil, that big, heavy, wide, very, very high curtain where he stepped into the most tangible, the most intense presence of God who stood before the mercy seat. There was the fear that if he had not satisfied God in the way that he purified himself, that he could drop dead the moment he stepped through that curtain. 
Can you imagine bearing that responsibility? A person might think, "Well, pretty cool to be the great to be, to be the high priest." You know, you get a lot of you know get a lot of attention for that. That's the ultimate status amongst the people of Israel. Yes, but so the tradition says that number one, they they tied a cord around the ankle of the high priest so that the chance that he dropped dead, they could pull him out because nobody could go in to get him otherwise. There were bells, according to God's instruction, bells um, sewn onto the to the edge, the bottom hem of his of his robes, so that the people could hear him tinkling as he's walking about, so that they knew he was still alive in there. At the end of the day, extra biblical literature tells us that the high priest would go home and just relax with his family and eat a feast, because you can imagine the relief at the end of this day, the responsibilities having been executed and making it home alive. So it was all a vivid reminder to the people that God is holy, access to God is limited, humans must approach fearfully, they must be properly qualified, they must be properly cleansed. But we see in the New Testament that we have a great high priest who throws open the door for us to approach the throne of grace. Then we see, and saw in the next section, in part two, we saw the annual atonement for Old Testament Israelites. We looked at some more today in the summary portion. But we see the narrative intro first to the Day of Atonement. We looked back into those first verses and saw the warnings of uh, the context because it was right after these two sons of Aaron had been stricken for offering up tainted offerings, not following God's instructions exactly. And so it became very clear that God meant business, that people could die from doing things wrong. And so then the instruction was given uh, through Moses, tell Aaron to do things exactly this way for the Day of Atonement. And so he did. And so then we have the detailed ritual laid out for us, verses 11 through 22. We looked at that as we saw stage one was the atonement for the, for the high priest and the other priests with him, uh, verses 11 through 14. And they offered up a bull for the sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. If you remember way back when we were introduced to the, the particular five offerings, we talked about what the purpose of the sin offering was, what the burnt offering was, and, and that those two really went together. The burnt offering was the constant thing and that was always laid down first, and then other offerings, sin offering, peace offering, etc., were added to that. And so they offered up the bull for the sin offering for the priests and the ram for the, for the burnt offering. And then stage two was atonement for the people. And so then there was a goat that was offered for the sin offering and another ram for the burnt offering. And then stage three was atonement for the altar and the other furnishings of the, of the tabernacle itself. And so blood from both the bull offered up on behalf of the priests and the goat offered up on the behalf of the people, this sin offering mingled and was sprinkled on the, the bronze altar and the other furnishings of the, of the tabernacle. And then stage four was the release of the scapegoat in which there was the two goats, remember, and one was chosen to be the sacrificial goat for the people. And this is a little bit out of sequence because things are explained mentioned and then explained and then back again and then explained another part and so on. It's just part of the Hebrew, Hebrew narrative style. But of these two goats, the one got to go free. And it was the, the guilt of the people was symbolically transferred to this goat. Remember, the high priest put his hand on the head of the goat. It was the scapegoat and he confessed all the sins of the people. 
over this goat. Then it was taken out to a faraway place in the wilderness and sent away. And then the other was sacrificed, as we will uh, see as the narrative loops back to summarize that again for us today. We saw in contrast to that annual atonement for Old Testament Israelites, we saw ultimate atonement for New Testament believers where we have access to God that still requires atoning sacrifice, but Jesus being uniquely qualified and able to achieve that for us. And so we see that he was the propitiatory atoning, propitiatory, say that three times fast, it's a little tongue twister, atoning sacrificial lamb of God as he was revealed even by John the Baptist, right? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just a covering sacrifice, it's important that he chose the word that he did when he said takes away the sins of the world. As we saw in Romans that those all the sacrifices were God's temporary covering, his way of overlooking sin for the time until he could reveal his absolute justice through Jesus Christ and deal with sin once and for all. And so we saw Jesus as the Lamb of God. And then moving on now today, uh, we come to uh, see the temporary cleansing of Old Testament Israelites. Verses 23 through 34, we pick up in verse uh, 23 in chapter 16. And again, this kind of uh, loops back to summarize the end of, of that whole process. But it's interesting because now there's the inclusion of what happens immediately after these sacrifices are made, and particularly the cleansing part. And you can go on to move on to number five. So let's read together um, verses 23 through 34. We'll look at this passage and then we'll break it down just a little bit. There is another slide there if you're able to. Um, look ahead, you'll see a series of slides, gentlemen, that has text for today. Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 23. Maybe we can come back. I'm going to ask them to go back and forth today, rather than repeating all those slides and trying to put them in sequence or talk them all in there. Here we go. Leviticus uh, 16:23. That Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And get this, he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and then put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. Now some of this is rehearsing some of the things that he is doing, but it's pointing out in the middle of this that, that he went through a ritual cleansing before he was able to move on to the next stage. And then we see in verse 26, he who lets the goat go to Azazel, we don't know what that is exactly, but, but the word might just mean wild place, um, but it's the scapegoat. The person who accompanied the scapegoat took it far away from the camp of the people and let it go. Uh, this person shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. Verse 27, the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, that's the priest's offering, the people's offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, those carcasses, what's left of them, shall be carried outside the camp, and their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. So that's a cleansing of, the, of, of not only just the tabernacle area, but of the whole camp. The, that refuse is not to stay. It's to be taken out. It's to be destroyed completely. Burned with fire. Verse 28, And then he who burns them 
shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come back into the temple. You see the cleansing theme throughout this? Verse 29, it shall be a statue to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, uh, either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you. Verse 30, the key verse in this passage. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest, that means the high priest, in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of the meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did. Well, let's just kind of look at this a little bit. We see, first of all, the temporary cleansing. If you can go back there to, to uh, Roman numeral 5, thank you. The temporary cleansing for Old, for Old Testament Israelites in this passage. Uh, the cleansing followed atonement, as I noted. And you see that in those verses 23 through 28. So this is kind of stage five of the process. Before we look at stage one, two, three, four, right? Atonement for the priest, atonement for the people, atonement for the bronze altar, etc. Release of the scapegoat. And now we have the cleansing of all the participants, the cleanup of the aftermath of the sacrifices. And this was symbolic of the spiritual results of atonement. It was all of these things, all of this pageantry was for the people. You see, throughout the law, in the Old Testament, God is achieving a couple of things, at least, two major things. And we see this explained for us uh, in Romans, in Hebrews, elsewhere in the Testament. Two major things. Paul points out to us in Romans, especially Romans chapter 9, that the purpose of the law was to teach us about our sin, was, was to make people aware of the fact that Given our very best efforts, we cannot measure up to the holiness of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. We're all guilty before God. So best efforts are still inadequate. We cannot achieve the level of perfection of holiness that God requires in order for people to be in fellowship with him and especially to be in his presence in heaven. So the law pointed that out because it demonstrated people's weakness. It's, it held up a standard, which isn't even the very highest standard. Jesus illuminated more on that in, the, in Matthew, where he gave the, delivered what we call the Temple on the Mount. And he said over and over again, you have been taught, you have been told such and such, but I tell you. And he was referring to standards of the Old Testament law, but then he raised the standard and said, but that's not even enough. He said, you've been told that, you know, to, to kill somebody is, is murder and that, that God hates that. But, but I say, even to say something hateful to them makes you guilty. So God, other people look on the outside, God looks on the heart. 
Jesus points this out. So he's saying, you know, even if you could really actually attain the whole law and nobody's managed to do it, not even the Pharisees, you still wouldn't be reaching God's standard of perfection. So the law was a teacher, it was an instructor to point out to everybody that we can't measure up on our own efforts. So that was one major purpose. Second major purpose, particularly in the, in the sacrificial system, was to foreshadow the work that God was going to do to bring that which is needed, the corrective measure that would meet us in our desperate need and achieve for us what we cannot achieve for ourselves. And so all of these things, all of the pageantry of these ceremonies was not God being capricious and demanding and, you know, oh, you be sure to toe the line. You sure be sure to do all kinds of tricky, difficult things to satisfy me. It wasn't what it was about. God didn't need bumping up. He was requiring the people to do all of these things so that they would learn lessons through the doing, so that they would understand eternal biblical truths, so that when Christ came, they would understand the significance of his ministry. So all of these things, all these little elements are important. So he was uh, symbolically demonstrating here through all this cleansing, not only for their good, for their hygiene, but, but all of the ceremony of this was to help the people understand atonement leads to cleansing. Cleansing is preferable. David understood this. In Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, I have that uh, on another slide. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, David says in his prayer, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And here he uses this language. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He understood that idea of only God can cleanse. Only God can wash away the guilt of sin, take away our transgressions. This was being illustrated in the sacrifice here. So, we also see here that animal sacrifices, back to the outline, animal sacrifices offered only limited cleansing. We see that in verse 29a and 34. So these are kind of the bookends of this little portion of the, of the passage here, the beginning and end of it, right? So in the first part of verse 23, uh, we read that Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments and put on... Um, I'm sorry, 29, sorry, uh, verse 29, that, I knew that didn't seem right. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you. So a date is set, an annual date. Now, because the Jewish calendar is structured differently than ours, we can't say, you know, that was October 24. It wasn't a fixed thing like that exactly. Uh, it's kind of like um, Mother's Day or Father's Day. It's kind of like, well, the first Sunday or the third Sunday or whatever of a given month, and, and so that, that number might change. But basically, in their calendar, this falls somewhere in September and October, somewhere in, the, in this time of the year would be when this Day of Atonement took place. Isn't this timely that we talk about it right now? Uh, so it had to happen annually. And the people could only observe reverently, mindful of their guilt, because if you see in all of the language here in, in between verses 29a and verse 34, well, it says, where it repeats once again, this shall be a statute for you forever. Atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all this sin. 
Do you see in between that it's the activity of the priest doing these things? Uh, go back to verse 29, the second part. He says, uh, you shall afflict yourselves and do no work. So the people were to, uh, the afflicting, this language here, is also sometimes translated humble. And the same word is used uh, by David in Psalm 35, verse 13. I have that slide as well, if we can get there. Psalm 35, verse th 13, where David says, uh, I, when they, these other oppressors talking about, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. And it's the same word there, that afflicting himself with fasting. He humbled himself. He denied himself something. He fasted in order to pray. And this is the same language that's being used here. So this is what was expected of the people on the Day of Atonement. While the priest was busy offering up the sacrifice, being the mediator between God and man, the people could do nothing to contribute to their own atonement. They had to stand by and observe these things. They were to consider it a very solemn event, so they were to humble themselves, they were to fast, and they were to do no work. They were to treat it as a solemn Sabbath, as it says both there in verse 29 and again repeated in verse 31. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourself. And it's to be for absolutely everyone, as it says in verse 29. Uh, either native, so all the Israelites, and anyone else that was in their camp. Also, we're all supposed to observe this as well. But there's something important about this as well, because this is another one of the illustrations that God was giving about the fact that the people could not achieve their own atonement. They couldn't do anything to add to the work that was being done. The blood that was being spilled was all that could work for them. So they were they were in this helpless passive condition, just being aware of their guilt that required all of these things on their behalf. Something to be considered when we, when we look at the work of Christ today. This is the, probably one of the biggest follies of, of humankind is to insist on religion. The Bible is not about religion. Religion is manufactured. Religion is man-made. Religion is people striving by their own efforts to somehow achieve that greater something beyond. Whether it be within a framework of you know, the Bible and thinking of the biblical God or whether it's other gods or whether it's other states of consciousness or reincarnation or whatever it may be, religion is all individuals trying to shape their own destiny by their own efforts, self-reliance. And God is trying to make it very clear to the people of Israel, and through this revelation for our benefit and everyone else who sees it, that what God is about is a relationship where there must be atonement in order for there to be forgiveness for guilt, but that we can't do it. We cannot achieve it for ourselves. So just as the people stood by helplessly, aware of their guilt, but unable to do anything to contribute to the solution, so people today must recognize that Jesus is the only solution. He does all the work as the great high priest and as the sacrifice, and all we can do is accept his work on our behalf. It's a powerful illustration of what is happening 
in these events in the, in the sacrificial system. So let's look at that. Let's, let's look at the permanent cleansing available for New Testament believers. These points are just two very simple points, but I want to take you to a couple passages in the New Testament. First of all, we see that permanent cleansing is available for New, New Testament believers because Jesus' atoning sacrifice was once for all. So in contrast to the annual event, that this had to be on a certain day every year, again and again, a new high priest selected. He has to go in and, and, and do all these things. And, and when he was good news at the end, right, it says that the, all the people would be cleansed. All the people would be forgiven for their sin at that point. The Day of Atonement kind of covered all the things that fell through the cracks, everything that was overlooked or underestimated in all of the other sin offerings, guilt offerings throughout the year, the Day of Atonement finally just kind of made a clean slate of everything in God's view through this sacrificial system. But it was only good for a while. I mean, later that day or by the next day at the very latest, sin was already marring the people, marring their souls, dirtying the camp spiritually. It was already accumulating. And there would have to be another day of atonement. But we look at Jesus and we see that what he did, because it wasn't the sacrifice of bulls and goats, because it wasn't the sacrifice of animals. His sacrifice was of inestimable worth. Unlimited atonement through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. So if you will read with me. This, I, you should find that. Thank you. Right on top of it. Thanks so much. Hebrews 10, 1 through, 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, and we've talked about this before, the fact that all of this was foreshadowing, it's, it's referred to here by the author of Hebrews as a shadow of the real thing, right? That's the whole idea. God was laying out these, these images, these scale models of reality through the Mosaic law. For the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these things. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And this word for perfect, this is, this is complete. This is, this is absolute. This is doneness. Okay? It, it cannot ever do once for all for these people what they need. So it cannot make them perfect. Otherwise, I mean, if it could, right, verse 2, if they could achieve that, if it could make the people truly perfect, it could really settle matters for them, uh, they would not, they would, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. The guilt would be gone if it had done its job. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, speaking to the Father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And that's not really what God's after. As I've said, he didn't need this for himself. Jesus is pointing this out. saying, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. These have never satisfied you. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus said, I have come to achieve that thing that will satisfy the propitiation as it was foretold in prophecy. Continues. So when, this is a commentary. So when he said, Jesus said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified. Sanctified is made pure, made clean. We have been sanctified through the offerings of the body of Jesus Christ. What are those last three words? What does it say? Once for all. I'm thankful that I don't have to find my way to Jerusalem to a temple and drag some poor innocent <laughs> lamb or goat with me year after year in order to be temporarily cleansed for my guilt. I'm thankful that there's something else that has been achieved by Jesus Christ. And in fact, it goes beyond the once and for, for all nature, but it's, but it's a totality of, of, of forgiveness. It's a wiping away of guilt. You see that Jesus' cleansing produces a clean conscience. Just further in the chapter, verse 22, Hebrews 10, 22 the author says, let us draw near. He's kind of coming to the so what of what he was discussing before. This would be kind of his, his application point. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can see all of his consciousness of, of exactly this day of atonement event in the Old Testament and pointing out how it's changed for us today. We can now draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With absolute confidence, we can approach God. Whereas the people had to stand back and let a high priest go into the presence of God on their behalf, he had to offer up sacrifices for himself and cleanse himself and enter fearfully before God. Now, because of what Jesus Christ is, has done, we are encouraged to just approach the throne of grace with confidence. We have direct access to God. Hallelujah. And we know that our hearts are sprinkled clean. We have a clear, clean conscience. Now, do we sin? I mean, there's, there's a couple levels of what we're talking about here. Yes, we still live in this old sin-cursed body in a sin-cursed world. But the forgiveness, the cleansing, is so great that it's already there when we sin. Already covered. It's already done. So, so we never have to fear approaching God. We don't have to be, oh, blew it. I can't, I can't talk to God now. We have access. It's already been covered. It's been taken care of by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. But yes, we need to confess our sin so that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he can do so, as Scripture says. He is faithful and just to forgive us all for all of our sins. He is just because he's not compromising his standards by forgiving you. He's like, okay, I'll just overlook it this time. No. 
It's sin. It required a sacrifice, but it's been paid. Done. So he can justly forgive you because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so knowing that, we never have to fear God. Having been washed in the blood of the Lamb, as, we, as that song goes that the ensemble plays. Into the river I've been baptized, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So now we can approach the throne of, of grace with confidence, knowing that all of our sin has been dealt with. Paul, of course, deals with those who would raise the, the issue of, oh, so does that mean, you know, that the grace is so great it covers all my sin that I might as well sin more so that grace can just be that much, you know, show off how big God's grace is. You know, I'll sin more so that grace is applied more. And, and, and of course, Paul says, God forbid. Why, having been cleansed at such a price, would you just live in such a way that doesn't reflect the grace and the goodness that's been shown to you? How ungrateful can we be? We just flaunt our sin before God. Well, just a couple of couple of takeaways, a couple of summary thoughts. First of all, human efforts clearly can never accomplish what Jesus sacrificed. So give up religion. If there's anyone who hears this message, whether here who has not accepted Christ's gift of forgiveness by his own blood sacrifice, or if someone listens to this later online, if you're home observing and listening, if you haven't availed yourself of this gift of grace, we need to abandon any hopes of being saved by religious effort. Human efforts cannot reach God. They cannot, you cannot build a bridge long enough. You cannot build a tower tall enough to reach God by human effort. You cannot make yourself holy enough. You cannot cleanse yourself enough to be received by God. It's impossible. Religion is an exercise in absolute ability. But everyone does need Jesus' cleansing. And anyone can have it. That's the good news. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, referring to Jesus, we have fellowship with one another because we're all sharing the same life. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sin. There's the cleansing again. It comes from the blood atonement. Now there's this warning. If we say we have no sin, you know, I don't need that. I don't need what Jesus did there for me. I'm not such a bad person. I'm not really a sinner. Oh, the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't even in us. We completely, completely fooled ourselves. We're delusional, if we were to put it in modern language. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. So faithful, he will absolutely do it. Just, he has every right to do it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be clean. We can approach the throne of grace with clear conscience. So I offer that, that invitation. First of all, if you are someone who hasn't been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, you need to come to Christ. Simple as accepting his work. Just as the people of, of, of the Old Testament time could do nothing to contribute to their own atonement, so you cannot contribute to your own salvation. You cannot add to the work of Christ. He doesn't need anything added. You cannot do anything that's meaningful to God. 
by any religious effort whatsoever. Crawling on your knees for miles and miles and bowing before altars and any, none of this stuff, none of that is going to achieve anything to satisfy God or to contribute to salvation. It's all done entirely by the work of Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest who himself was the Lamb of God who sacrificed. And so I urge anyone who hears this message to deal with that today, to thank God for his gift of salvation through the atoning, cleansing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Accept the cleansing that he offers. He promises forgiveness. He is right to do so. He will give you eternal life. If you are a believer, and I know the majority of those listening here are, I hope you will, with me, just take this opportunity to rejoice once again. You know, you know there are preachers, I, I've heard some, some of the great old, you know, stalwart men of the faith say, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. There's something to that. Being reminded, reminding ourselves to be grateful and to live in accordance with the grace of God. Remember what he's achieved for us. To be grateful. That should steer our lives on a daily basis. You ask, you know, well, what's the application of this? We're looking at the Old Testament sacrifices and people long ago, and we live under grace today, everything like that. Exactly. We live under grace. Are we living like people who are under grace? Are we living like people who would be guilty were it not for the work of Christ? Or are we still fighting for autonomy? Are we still in our heart of hearts telling ourselves, it's my life. I'll do what I want. No, you've been bought with a price. His life. Living like that. You're living gratefully. And I'm just as convicted as anybody when I, when I, when I consider these things. Are we living gratefully? Are we living like we have been bought precious blood of Jesus Christ? Part of that is just keeping the relationship warm since we've been given this access, this precious access, something that the Israelite people at that time just could have never conceived, that they themselves could talk to God directly, that they could approach him with confidence, knowing that he wasn't going to hold their guilt against them something they couldn't they just couldn't imagine the privilege that we have today and how flippantly do we hold it how much do we neglect to go to god how many days go by between the conversations that we have with god how many hours go by that we don't give him a second thought wouldn't our lives be changed if we were truly conscious, if we could grasp depth, height, width of this gift that you have? Just ask him to help us live like that. Father, we just once again are grateful that though we are sinners and we just have nothing to contribute, nothing to endear ourselves to you, nothing to merit your, your goodness, your grace, your love, Still, you have extended yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful, Jesus, that you so willingly came, that you just, we can't even understand the demotion that you accepted just to come and take on human flesh and live among us. But then to be so misunderstood, to be abused, to be 
crucified, to be murdered in such a brutal way. But even more than that, to, to bear the guilt and shame that really is ours. Do that yet so graciously, so lovingly, and so victoriously. We are recipients of, of gifts that we just cannot understand, that we cannot grasp. We ask that you would work in our hearts to, to understand it a little bit better, to grasp just a little bit more of it, to be more, more mindful of it on a daily basis, that we might live grateful lives, that we might live increasingly holy lives that reflect your goodness and your righteousness and your love to lost world around us people who do not understand who you are, who do not understand what you have done for them, who do not understand the relationship you desire to have with them, who continue to strive to achieve things for themselves, whether it be without reference to you at all or, or in some deluded effort to achieve things for themselves that they cannot achieve. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be messengers of, of your grace messengers of your love and your mercy, the completed work of Jesus Christ. Help us not to hold back. Those opportunities come when you bring someone into our little sphere of, of life. Pray, Father, that when you impress upon our hearts that we need to speak, that you would just give us the courage and the words to do. Help us to share your good news. Father, I pray that you would help us to be in touch with you more faithfully, that we would take advantage of this tremendous privilege that you have purchased for us to give us access to your throne, that we can talk to you anytime. Pulling weeds in the backyard, driving in the car, sipping our coffee, talking with other people, we can be, we can be fellowship with you. It's, it's a privilege that we don't understand, but, but we would treat it differently. I pray, Father, that you would help us. We would live that way. For anyone who has heard this message or may hear this message in the future, Father, if they do not know you, I pray that you would use the truth of your word to help them to see their need, to lead them to that relationship with you. Draw them to yourself. Let them experience your mercy and your grace in them. Gain your forgiveness, your cleansing that comes by the atoning work of Jesus Christ alone. ask you to stand with me. We'll close with this song we sing together. One Another, not old oldies, but it's been around a good while. <laughs> We're going to sing 